0: Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Valita. Uh, Let's take a second now, if you would, and please join me. Let's pray briefly and ask God to um, help us understand this part of his word well. Then we'll jump in. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you again this morning asking again that you would meet us where we are. And we thank you that you do that through the Holy Spirit ministering to us now. We ask, Father, as we study this letter of James, which is in many ways quite a difficult letter uh, to really uh, take in and obey. Father, we pray that you would be at work giving us soft hearts so that we can say sorry to you and to one another for our sin, for our own brokenness, for our own failures, and turn back and rest in Jesus as he offers himself to us in the gospel. Through his death and resurrection, we have renewal. We have new life. We are pardoned and made your sons and daughters. We are brought into your family. So help us to believe that this morning, God, and we pray that you would be at work at work in our hearts, at work in our minds, at work in our very practical daily lives, helping us to live for you, to live in your name and for your glory. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. organizational leadership literature and uh, books I love reading that sort of thing and there's one um, idea or concept that has really helped me as I've read about what it means to be a leader to lead organizations and really this applies to anyone no matter if you're a leader of an organization or not and that is the difference between what the literature calls technical challenges and adaptive challenges. You might be familiar with that term, you might not. A technical challenge is a challenge that you already possess the tools to solve. A, an adaptive challenge, however, or an adaptive problem, is a challenge or a problem that requires you to change in some way, it requires you to adapt before you are able to meet or solve the problems or the challenges that are presented to you in whatever situation you may find yourself. And what the literature says that I think is extremely insightful and very, very important for most everyone is that one of the major problems in leadership, one of the major problems in life, is that we bring technical solutions to adaptive challenges. We bring technical solutions to adaptive challenges. And I'm convinced that we often do that in our spiritual lives as well. We often just try to rely on the stuff we've always done or what we already are or what we've been taught in order to meet perhaps new and very challenging issues that crop up in our lives as we are trying to follow Jesus. Really, the book of James was written to address the issue of us who are trying to follow Jesus needing to be constantly adapting and changing. Thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit to help us do that, but change requires work. It requires a ruthless honesty about ourselves. And we've seen again and again in James that he is driving us to that place. James has been telling us again and again that God the Father is radically committed to each one of his followers becoming whole people. He talks about that in chapter 1, verse 4. The whole point of James is for us to understand what it means to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James chapter 1, verse 4. And we've seen that that process requires adaptive change. It's very difficult. Really, you could summarize the entire process that God is calling us to through James with one word. It's a very biblical word. It's a word that you might be familiar with. The word is repentance. Repentance. That's the biblical word that really summarizes the entire message of James's ancient letter. It's the first way, the primary way, along with faith, that we respond to God's gracious love for us. That's why we see it spoken about all the time by Jesus and by the Apostle Paul and by the Apostle Peter and here by the Apostle James. And that's our theme this morning. James is all about the journey towards wholeness. And if you're ever going to become a whole person, if you're ever going to become a person of joyous integrity, then repentance must be something that defines your life, it must be something that defines your daily habits and rhythms. We enter into chapter 4 today, and we see that James is still concerned with some of the same threads that he's already begun. He's still concerned with our words, which Bryce, thankfully, preached for me last week when I was out. He talked about that in James 3. James is still concerned today with our integrity, with our lack of hypocrisy. And James is still concerned that each one of us lead lives of wisdom on the journey towards wholeness. And here in these verses, God calls us to move forward. He calls us to change by his grace. Repentance, again, is a one-word summary of everything that the Holy Spirit is asking of you through James. Repentance is a key ingredient in the journey towards wholeness. So let's summarize the main idea this morning like this, okay? The journey towards wholeness involves restoring broken fellowship with broken-hearted repentance. The journey towards wholeness involves restoring broken fellowship with broken-hearted repentance. So let's in a way break that sentence down into two parts, and that's what we'll do this morning. First I want to talk about broken fellowship and second broken-hearted repentance. I think that outlines James chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. So first, in the first few verses here, we see James writing to us under the inspiration of God's spirit about broken fellowship. First, he talks about broken fellowship that we have with one another. Look again in verse 1 and verse 2. He uses some really strong, strong language here. Quarrels, fights, war, murder, fighting, quarreling. Again and again and again, James is writing here to churches, to local assemblies of believers in Jesus Christ, whose gatherings and whose life together was defined to a large extent by fighting, by bickering, by anger. And he intends this language, this language of even a word like murder, right, to express the horror, the pain, the devastation of the situation. The Christians that he was writing to some 2,000 years ago were battling each other, and it was ugly. You know, if you're not a Christian, or if you've only been a Christian for some time, Or if you've been a Christian for a long time, you probably know that one of the biggest defeaters, so to speak, of Christianity. One of the main reasons why many people aren't Christians is because of what they see Christians acting like, especially with regards to each other. Um, When they see Christians fighting and quarreling among each other, it causes them to think, you know, this can't be true if people treat each other that way who claim to follow Jesus. And that's been the case for centuries, in the 18th century, one of famous philosopher named Spinoza wrote this. I think I have it on the screen there. Listen to this. He says, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to a watching world and for our own lives when we are defined in our relationships with each other by fighting and bickering and quarreling. Really what James is getting at here is the question of why. Why do these fights and these questions keep on happening? That's what he's really after. What lies beneath And he tells us very clearly that it's the passions, verse 1, that are at war within us that causes us to fight one another. It is misplaced desires. Or as the great theologian St. Augustine would have put it, the issue is our own disordered hearts. That's what the word there, passions, refers to. Think about how important this must have been for James. He really doesn't even mention the actual issues that the people were fighting over. You notice that? He just mentions that they were fighting and that they were fighting because these passions, these misplaced desires are are at war within them. Sometimes what we're fighting about doesn't even matter as much as the fact that we are fighting. And I believe that that is what grieves the heart of God. The imagery of the language here is imagery of Enemy armies waiting in ambush for one another, you know, waiting for the bugle to sound so that we can begin the attack against anyone who stands in the way of some personal gratification that we are after. So the cause of fighting with each other, the scriptures are telling us, lies inside of us and not outside of us. That's essential to understanding the Christian faith. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. So what does that look like in our lives practically? Again, this word passions is a reference to our own unfettered desire for personal fulfillment in any form. James is talking about the way we devote time and energy and money to seeking self-satisfaction above all else. And he's saying that the reason we do that, and this is crucial, is because of our own inner heart sickness. It's because of the cancerous nature of humans' rebellion against their creator, God. What might that look like in your life? Maybe as the Holy Spirit is at work right now, you can think of some things on your own let me just give a few examples one way that our passions wage war within and cause us to fight each other is revolves around the issue of money and possessions without question you know we might think my life is not going the way i want and i am irritable and angry and resentful because i don't make enough money i don't think or i don't have all the things i want to have right And we might spend tremendous amounts of money to create a life that we think will insulate or protect us from toil or frustration. And we find that that doesn't work, and so we just get more and more frustrated. So we find ourselves in the midst of really relative luxury as Americans, feeling deeply spiteful, feeling unhappy, feeling unsatisfied. The reason that that's going on in your heart is because you have a disordered heart. You have misplaced desires, James is saying. Perhaps you find yourself this morning in a conflict, especially if you're a Christian. You find yourself in a conflict this morning with another brother or sister in Jesus. You know, either it's a cold war, you know, you just kind of walk by and "Mm -mm," like that. I'm not talking to that person. Or it's just like an outright war of hostility, right? I want you to see that the issue is not, Listen, this is hard, but this is, I think, what James has for us. The issue is not just with them. That's what he's saying here. He's saying that the issue, at least in part, has to do with you. It has to do with your own passions waging war, your own misplaced desires. Ask yourself, do you, deep down, resent this person's position or gifts or friendships or the fact that they are new, maybe, and doing what you used to do. Or the fact that they seem connected socially in a way that you want to be connected socially. And it's causing you animosity and jealousy and anger. The reason for that is because you have a disordered heart. Perhaps you find yourself uh, in fairly constant conflict with your spouse. Um, probably that doesn't happen to any of us. but um, And there's you know maybe deep frustration in your relationship. In your marriage. And perhaps the reason for that, I think James is calling us to ask and examine ourselves, is because we commonly use the relationship primarily as a vehicle for our own self gratification rather than as a way to serve and love the other. That is why there's irritation and low grade discontentment in our marriages. It's one of the reasons. We have a disordered heart. So James here speaks into situations in which there is broken fellowship, you see, with each other as a result of our passions waging war within, within us and, and wreaking havoc relationally and emotionally. And then he goes on in verses the second part of verse 2 all the way through the, verse 4 to talk about how these passions at war within us cause broken fellowship not just with each other, right, but they also cause broken fellowship between us and God. That's what he's getting at there in those later verses in the first few uh, parts of our sermon this morning, of the story this morning. In verse 3, James says that when our passions are at war within us, it causes a rupture with God. And by the way, he's writing here to Christians primarily. This is true for those who have already placed faith in Jesus. Listen, unrepentant hearts and allowing our unbridled selfishness to fester leads to interrupted communion with God. Now, as a qualification, James is not saying here that this is some sort of like you're going to lose your salvation interruption in fellowship or communion with God. He's not saying that, but he is saying that if you're a follower of Jesus and you're persisting to neglect the practice of repentance and you're living in these broken relationships, he's saying that that affects your intimacy. It affects your walk with God when you're not regularly dealing with your own heart issues through repentance and faith in the gospel. How does that manifest itself? Oh, look at what James says. He primarily talks here about prayer. Look at what he says. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I think we can put it like this. If you only pray When you need something or want something, that might be a sign of the passions waging war in you and a need for you to repent. It might be a sign of interrupted fellowship with God. When we treat God like, as C.S. Lewis puts it, our heavenly grandfather who just is up there wanting everybody to be happy and get along as he gets more and more senile, right? If we just treat God like our heavenly grandfather, rather than the one for whom we were made to have fellowship with, our heavenly father, we are signaling that our relationship with with him has at least some degree of fracturing going on. Passions warring within leads, you know, it leads to the avenue that is prayer being clogged, like I-35 on a bad day, right? At eight in the morning. The, you can feel the passions warring within when you're sitting on I-35 at eight in the morning. I know from experience, especially when it's raining. You know, everyone drives. Well, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to let my passions war within in front of the whole church. Um, so when when that's going on in you, right, your your prayer life is sort of like a clogged traffic jam. It's like you know the signal you have with God on your cell phone being choppy, so to speak. And often this is really subtle. It's especially subtle for those of us who have mastered the language of religiosity. We can even fool ourselves. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we are praying God's will when really we're just acting and praying selfishly. I think this is important enough to repeat. Let me put it this way, okay? Self-centered prayer in its many subtle forms is not really prayer at all at the end of the day. Because prayer, fundamentally, is a manifestation of dependence and not independence. Prayer is an exercise of faith, not an attempt to gain our own ambitions. As the theologian Eugene Peterson has said, prayer is not so much the attempt to get God in line with our will as the attempt for us to move into what God's will already is. So question to ask ourselves is, which one of those is the description of your own prayer life? This morning, this week, this month, this year, do you pray to God for who he is or just for what he can potentially give? Do you pray when things are going well? Or, you know, like the proverbial atheist in the foxhole, do you only pray when the bullets are flying by in your life? That's what James is calling us to ask ourselves. He's calling us to ruthless self-examination. He's calling us to see that our own misplaced desires, our own disordered hearts create broken fellowship. Okay, Broken fellowship with each other, broken fellowship with God. But thankfully, James doesn't end there in verse 5. He doesn't say, I'm out, you know. people, drops the mic, ends the letter. He doesn't do that. He continues to move forward. In fact, he gives us a solution. He gives us a way forward into wholeness, into completion. He says there transitionally in verse 5 and verse 6, especially verse 6, that God gives more grace. What a statement that is. Listen, get the big picture in your minds. These early Christians, much like we tend to do, they're warring. They're murdering each other in their hearts. They're filled with rage, with bickering, with anger, with slighting each other. And yet, James writes, God gives more grace. He gives more grace. He yearns jealously for us, we read. He calls us out of our spiritual adultery, verse 4 out of pursuing our own desires, out of pursuing our own self-absorption above pursuing him, the one our souls were made for. Listen, everybody listen. We need this to sink in. Listen, God sees all of our disordered hearts. God sees and knows our misplaced desires. God sees the passions at war within us. God sees that we covet. God knows how jealous you are. He knows how angry you are. He knows how lustful you are. He knows how selfish you are. He knows how cruel you are. He knows how deceitful you are. He knows how fickle you are. He knows how arrogant you are. God knows all about our spiritual adultery. We can't fool him. We're like the the husband who smells like the perfume of another woman as he gets into bed with his wife. God knows our weakness. God knows how prone we are to temptation. God knows how short-lived our obedience can be. And what does God do? How does God respond? He gives more grace. He beckons and summons sinners like you and like me to himself. God welcomes us back home. God tells us, don't hesitate to come back to me. I have given my own life for your forgiveness. I love you. I have graven your name on my heart. You are mine. I will not forget you. I will not forsake you. Sin cannot have you. God offers grace. Free grace. He offers pardon. He offers forgiveness in the midst of all of this fighting, in the midst of all of the broken fellowship, through the death of Jesus Christ for our sin, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to new life, through God making all things new, through connecting to Jesus by faith alone in his work, through all of that stuff that we call the gospel, we are made new creatures the scriptures tell us. We are given new identities. We are recipients of a super abounding oversupply of grace, getting the opposite of what we deserve. That's the story. That's your story. If you're a follower of Jesus, I love the song we're going to sing here in a minute. The love of God, the song starts like this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star, and yet it reaches deeper still. Though generations will pass away and earthly kingdoms will fall, his boundless love will never fade in valley low or mountain tall. Listen, God offers more grace. His grace is greater than all of your sin, than all of your broken fellowship with each other or with God. The offer of grace is ever and always available for any who will come to Jesus. So how do you respond to that offer? That's really what James is getting at. Look at verse six. He gives more grace. Therefore, you see that word? Very important word. In light of the fact that God shows grace to weak, broken sinners. In light of that, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. In a word, the response to grace is repentance. The only way to arrive That wholeness and completeness is along the road of repentance. It is by humbling yourself before God. Now, what does that mean? It's very religious language. Listen to this uh, guy that writes about James for a living. His name is Doug Moo. He writes this. To humble yourselves means to recognize our own spiritual poverty to acknowledge our desperate need for God's help and to submit to his commanding will for our lives. That's what repentance is. It requires humility. I think that humility is really beautifully exemplified in one of Jesus's most famous parables. It's a parable of two men. One is a very religious guy who stands up and prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like this person. I give you a tenth of everything I've earned. I've been in church every week since as long as I can remember. I've got the Old Testament memorized. Thank you, God. And then the second man, the second man simply falls down on his knees and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus tells the people and tells us, which one of those two men went away justified? The second the man who is able to admit and recognize his own spiritual poverty. The person who is able to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what repentance is. And really, verses 7 through 10 flesh out the quote there in verse 6 even further. And if you count them all up, you'll see that in those verses, 7 through 10, there's about 10 commands that James gives, all of which describe repentance in some way or another. And this really, I think, in a lot of ways is the heart of James's letter. And again, please hear this. The only way to have fellowship with God and with one another restored is to have broken hearts over our sin that lead to repentance. The great Puritan author Thomas Boston has a book called Repentance. Very clever title. Uh, It's about repentance. And uh, he writes at one point in that book this. There is never a soul that comes back to God, but it comes the low way of humiliation or humility the sinner gone from god is set up against him but grace puts the sinner down from that seat and lays him down at the lord's footstool where the lord takes him up humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of god okay so briefly what does repentance look like for james what might it look like in your own life what does it mean to repent as a response to god's offer of grace okay real quick as we wrap up three things okay First, look in verses 9 and 10. Repentance begins with true sorrow. That's what James is getting at there when he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. That's kind of a weird way to put it. He's saying, you should be sorry over the state of your life. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So true repentance involves, at the very least, seeing yourself rightly. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. It revolves, at the very least, seeing yourself rightly. It means that you not only see the guilt of the sin that you commit against God, but you also see just how loathsome it is, how awful sin is to God, how it offends God, how it put Jesus on the cross to die. The prophet Joel in the Old Testament says, rend your hearts, tear your hearts, not your garments. Repentance involves a true sorrow and remorse over your sin. But it involves more than that. Second, verse 7, repentance is active submission. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So repentance involves sorrow, but it doesn't just involve sorrow. There's plenty of people in the Bible who are very, very sorrowful for their sin and for their failures, but they're not at all repentant. Judas Iscariot, great example. King Saul, great example. It's possible to be sorrowful, to feel really, really bad, but to not repent because your sorrow doesn't lead to submission, you see. And that's what James is calling us to here. Repentance involves a sorrow that leads to an accompanying change of behavior. So very practically, repentance is trying to fight against the sin of which you are repenting. It is an active turning away from it out of a sense of disgust and then fighting against it with the power of God behind you. So that's what it is. Secondly, it's it's true sorrow. It's active submission. And then verse 8, repentance is third, seeking fellowship with God. It involves coming to God and acknowledging that you have broken fellowship with him. Sin is departing from God. Repentance is coming back to him again. That's why King David, in his famous prayer in Psalm 51, after his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, says, against you, God, against you only have I sinned. That's an expression of true repentance. He is seeking to restore fellowship with God. That's why in Jesus' parable in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, when the son is eating out of the pig trough after he's left his father's home, he looks up and says, I'm going to go back to my father. And implied there is, I want to restore fellowship, restore the broken relationship with him. And crucially, this is done in the knowledge and in the faith that God will always welcome you. That God will always receive you. He doesn't make you grovel. He doesn't shame you. Rather, James writes, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So, okay, let's let's just wrap it up like this. It's fairly simple how we need to conclude this morning. The question should be obvious for me and for you. Have you repented? Have you repented of your sin? If you're here and you're a Christian, that question might seem, you know, superfluous or pointless to you. And I I just want you to hear Thomas Boston, the Puritan, again, he he calls repentance an abiding grace, an abiding grace. And I think part of what he means by that is that Really, the warp and woof, the substance of the Christian life is repentance. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that you see your shortcomings, you see your sin, you see how you've offended God by not honoring him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you tell him you're sorry. Sorry, And you try to fight against your sin and live for righteousness. And you do all of that in the grand context of faith in Jesus' provision for you in the gospel. So Christians... You need to ask yourself, have you repented? That's what it means to be a Christian, to daily repent and believe the gospel. Listen one more time to Boston. Here's what he says. A true penitent will always be repenting as long as he is sinning. He sees that he is often falling into the mire and therefore he must be often washing, daily contracting new debt, therefore must be daily crying for forgiveness. Maybe you've never repented. you, You grew up around the church, you've heard Bible teaching before, you might even have been to Sunday school, you might give some money to the church, you might serve on a team somewhere, who knows? But you've never repented. You've never turned from your sin in an actively submissive way and said, God, I am sorry, I have failed you, I deserve your condemnation, I deserve to be your enemy, but through Jesus you have made me your friend. I want to trust and believe these things are true and leave my life of sin and rebellion behind. Father, please help me to do that. Not just today, but onward, through the rest of my life. That's what perhaps Jesus is calling you today towards for the first time. And and can I just say this? Repentance is not a suggestion from Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, you know, I think it would be a good idea I think it would be a good idea, all things considered, you should probably think about repenting. No, Mark 1, first thing Jesus says, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance is not a suggestion. Repentance is a summons to obedience from your rightful and lawful king. And It's a summons to obedience from your rightful and lawful king that leads you into a life of flourishing. It leads you to put your heart's desires in the right place. Disobeying King Jesus has not been well for you. Your desires are misplaced. Your hearts are disordered. It's not gone well. Maybe Jesus is saying, you should try coming back to me, the one for whom your hearts are made, the one that you long for even though you might not know it. That's what James is pressing upon us, you see. It's what God is pressing upon us. He longs for you to come home. He longs for you to turn away from sin with sorrow, with humility, and turn to God through faith in Jesus. May we all do it, even this morning. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray together.